You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and uh, welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is uh, Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. I'm talking to you from most not most ideal location, but in a, a windy corner of Mildura Airport where I've been uh, visiting a uh, new solar storage facility. And joining me as usual is ITK analyst, uh, principal, I should say, David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I, tr- I am well. I, uh, I trust all our guests are well. And I was disappointed to hear you flew out to Mildura because it's a fantastic drive when I did it in my EV. But uh, let's not talk about our personal experiences. We've got a great guest this week and plenty of other stuff to talk about as well. Well, I would have lived, loved to have driven out here, but I wouldn't have had the time. Been, and, and especially given the this week, which we'll talk about later. But look, let's first introduce our guest for uh, today or this week. It's uh, Mark Collette, the uh, CEO of Energy Australia, uh, one of the big three utilities. And um, look, really, uh, without any further ado, um, let's hear um, the interview with um, with Mark. Mark Collette, CEO of Energy Australia. Welcome once again to the Energy Insiders podcast. G'day, David. Great to be back. Uh, Mark, I think it was February last year that you were uh, last a guest on Energy Insiders. A lot's changed since then, and I guess I'm interested to see that you've uh, Energy Australia has released uh, CTAP, uh, its Climate Transition Action Plan. Um, tell, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely, David. Uh, David, our purpose is to lead and accelerate the clean energy transformation for all. And our climate transition action plan is about how we're going to deliver that. It articulates the actions we're taking to achieve net zero scope one and two by 2050 and our ambitions for scope three in the same time frame. Our ambitions and actions fall broadly into one of two buckets, either bringing the new system to life to replace the existing fossil fuel dominated uh, system or um, our actions around um, transitioning out of that fossil fuel um, system. A few highlights that I'm sure we'll explore a little. Firstly, we have committed up to three gigawatts of um, renewable energy by 2030 operating and or in construction. Um, that's an increase from our current 850 megawatts of power purchase agreements. That's the, the first um, first uh, commitment that we've made. A second is around uh, is around the commitment of five billion either directly or through partners in the firming side of renewables to, to bring that to life. And then the third is around the role of Mount Piper, which is fundamentally about um, getting out of the way and supporting more renewables into the system while maintaining a contribution to system reliability that I'm, I'm very happy to explore further. Yes, the, all of those three are, are interesting to me. Um, why don't I'd like to start by just how you see the role of a Gentile. For instance, three gigawatts of renewables won't replace in energy terms the 2.8 gigawatts of coal generation, 2.9, that you operate between your lawn west uh, in Victoria and Mount Piper in New South Wales. So how, as, as a Gentailer, you'll have to find enough electricity to service your customer base. How are, you, how are you thinking about that? Our strategy is to make the energy transition simple for our customers, combining behind the meter solutions into our growing flexible energy portfolio. And I'm starting there because we believe customers see the energy system starting on their roof and, and in their business. And so a big part of our activities in looking to shape the nature of our business for customers going forward starts in homes and businesses with distributed energy, both in solar and distributed capacity in storage and batteries, and then coordinated and orchestrated use of that energy through things like electric vehicle charging and potentially um, interruption of electric heating uh, and things of that nature, which, which can give a better experience for customers in a way that uh, that manages the affordability and sustainability of their, their personal footprints. 
Beyond that, because we do see uh, distributed energy will not be able to supply all of the energy for any of the homes and businesses of our customers. We think perhaps over the course of the year, we might get at 30%. Uh, if, we're, if we do well as a nation, it might be more. As you say, then, there will need to be more energy that will come from renewable sources in the end state, primarily from, from wind and solar. For us, our approach is to underpin a certain amount of that. We have said three, up to three gigawatts by 2030. We may do that by power purchase agreement. We may do that by um, uh, some other different structure. You will have seen that we are part of the consortia bidding on the Eleonora. We're part of the Eleonora Offshore Consortia bidding on offshore wind in Victoria. It's a five gigawatt project, a very large project. And on that one, we're participating on the on the equity side. So we'll use a variety of of approaches to to underpin that up to three gigawatts by by 2030. And beyond that, we will look at um, we will look at contracting for energy from from other players. Our view is that we don't need to underpin all of the energy ourselves. Um, our view is that uh, three gigawatts up to three gigawatts is is a good is a good planning target for us to be working with, in the context that we're also focused on distributed generation at the same time. Yes, I, I hear that. And there's so many things to talk about. The offshore wind, which Giles is probably more expert on than me, uh, and, and the distributed side. And I'll bring Giles in in just a second. I just wanted to ask about the five billion of firming. Um, you know, uh, and I guess the broader question, uh, to the extent that you'd like to talk about it, Mark, I don't think it's any uh, secret at all that Energy Australia has, uh, or CLP Energy Australia's parent, has been looking for a partner uh, in its ownership of uh, Energy Australia. And $5 billion is a not insignificant amount of capital to have to find. Uh, can you just talk to me in general about you know, financing and, and, and how you see that moving forward? Sure. The objective we have is to access the storage and firming capacity to support more renewables into the grid. The way that we bring that to life is we use our balance sheet in the most efficient ways we can to maximise our impact. Sometimes we directly finance that investment. So Tullawarra B is one that we're doing ourselves under construction at the moment. Um, in time for, for summer um, in New South Wales. That's a 316 megawatt open cycle gas turbine that we will go to market for hydrogen to co-fire in 2025, and we're doing that on, on our own balance sheet. We have then looked at other structures for uh, other assets. We have worked with Edify Energy on a number of projects now, and John Cole and the team do an excellent job of, of bringing their projects to life. Most recently, um, Darlington and Riverina, the batteries there, they're coming online this year. Again, another project that's uh, that's on time. Um, it's an unusual thing in the energy industry at the moment, but another one that's it's, that's on time. And we've supported yes, that. No, you're, doing, you're doing well there. I have to say that uh, in, in the end, it's going to be great that Talawara B is, is coming on online just on time. But sorry to interrupt. Keep going, Mark. No worries. Very happy for that sort of interruption. And uh, and 90 gigawatts of batteries in, in New South Wales, again, will be very helpful coming into summer. And then beyond that, the, the team at Gen X, led by James Harding, I think it's actually his last day today in the CEO role, but they've done an excellent job of keeping that project, dealing with the geological risks along the way. Um, keeping that on track for the end of next year. And that's a 250 megawatt, uh, eight hour storage pumped hydro in Queensland. And again, for that project, we brought it to life via offtake. We recognise that our commitment as a creditworthy entity helps others raise finance. And at times, it's, um, it's a more efficient way for us to use our balance sheet to get there. So we will continue to look project by project at those firming opportunities, sometimes using our own balance sheet and sometimes using um, using other people's balance sheet and entering into contract structures. We recognize so I, we have a, on, a lot of projects that uh, are nearing the point at which we'll, we'll look, be looking for financial commitments. They include Mount Piper battery. So we have up to 500 megawatts of four hour battery on site at Mount Piper. Lake Lyle, a 330 megawatt, uh, up to 10 hours of storage, pumped hydro, again, based near Lithgow in New South Wales, the 350 megawatt, four hour Warren battery in Victoria, a 50 megawatt 
for our battery at Hallett, um, for example, in South Australia. These are all big projects for us. And CLP have a number of times um, indicated that they are open to, um, to partners where we choose to uh, not just use our own funds, to partners coming into that project or package of projects or, or to different structures to bring those to life. The main point I'll make is that our objective is to bring them to life and then the use of, of partners, our own balance sheet, debt financing, on a case-by-case -case basis, we'll do that in a way that brings the project to life. There's, there's, uh, I, I could talk for another two hours about this, and uh, but I, I'd like, Giles, um, I'm sure uh, you've got a few uh, questions you want to ask. Yeah. Look, I wouldn't mind hopping in here, and apologies for my sound. I'm actually just sort of standing outside Mildura Airport, and I think this propeller pane just about to sort of wind up. I've been out at the car warp solar and storage uh, plant, which is opening today, so that's uh, interesting new technology. Mark, um, I heard you talking about the Climate Action Plan um, before, and, 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 and that's great. To what extent do you guys, when you think about your strategy going forward, you know, net zero by 2050, to, to some people it seems to be an excuse not to, we even heard that politically, I think, um, from the opposition, you know, well, that means we don't have to do very much anytime soon because it's a bit of a kick in the ballpark. But we're seeing record temperatures, we're seeing climate impacts now, we've got our own El Nino season um, coming to Australia very soon. To what extent do you think about and do you make preparations for the fact that you might actually have to get to net zero a lot quicker than 2050? Absolutely. I'd go back to our purpose, which is lead and accelerate the clean energy transformation for all. Uh, we're constantly looking at how do we accelerate this transformation. And at the moment, there's, there's two areas that we're focused on doing that to bring it to life uh, around the building the new system and one on how we run the existing system from our perspective. The two that we focus on, can we get these going faster? First is distributed energy. We did launch a product called Solar Home Bundle, which under which we provide solar and a battery, no upfront cost to customers, seven year contract, fixed energy price, and the customer owns it at the end. The reason we launched that project, that, that sort of structure, is that we think it makes the energy transition simple for customers. There's a lot of customers out there who know how to do solar and batteries on their own, and for them, they don't need the assistance to, to move forward. There's others who are looking for someone like us to solve the problems of the energy transition, and those sorts of products are how we can see that we can really speed it up without all the social license issues that are coming um, deep in the grid. So we see a huge opportunity around leaning into the distributed side. And then the second on bringing the new system to life is use the existing sites that we have. We have some wonderful transmission connected sites uh, at in our portfolio at Mount Piper, at Yalorn, at Jiralang, at Hallett, these sorts of places. And that's where we're looking to put batteries because it'll be some of the fastest projects to get to life to then help underpin and enable more renewables. Yeah, and I'd love to get to Mount Piper in my next question, but I'd just like to ask that question one more time about net zero. Let's say your climate scientists got really serious and the politicians got really serious and said, okay, net zero 2035 or 2040. Um, are you in a position to help that happen and can we do it? Look, Mount Piper, we've announced that Mount Piper will close by 2040. And we haven't focused so much on the, um, the date of closure. What we've done in our Climate Transition Action Plan is said, our job is to make this happen as quickly as we can and for the role of Mount Piper to enable that. What do I mean by that? It means that we see three phases for Mount Piper. The first phase is today's phase where it's, it's broadly always on and then goes up and down in response to market conditions, particularly around renewable generation. So when it's windy, we drop down to minimum generation. We've actually made changes to Mount Piper. It's a 700 megawatt unit on one, 730 on the other, historically minimum generation of 220. Now we've made changes so that we can operate at 150 megawatts. So we've created an extra 140 megawatts that we can get out of the way. And that's, that's the first phase, always on, up and down. The second phase we see coming in the next few years, as more renewables is added, is sometimes on, up and down. Sometimes on means if there's a windy five days, we anticipate that we will turn the units off, one or two, and particularly once we have the battery and um, Lake Lyle and Talawara B, we have the tools to turn Mount Piper off and then turn it back on when it's required. And again, as we look to accelerate to net zero, Getting out of the way when we don't need to be there is a big part of how we do that day to day. 
And then more than that, we see a third role, a third phase that we go to with Mount Piper, which assuming Australia can hit the 82% by 2030, we see coming to life in the early to mid 2030s, which is a reserve role. And what that role is, is, is saying that most of the year wind, solar, batteries, pumped hydro can manage. Most, most of the time, that will be enough to, to make the, the system work. There are some periods we see where it won't. They are the one or two week low wind periods during winter where it's cloudy and it's cold and there's just not much generation from the renewable sources. There's not enough duration in the batteries. And so we're saying in the absence of a technology solution for long duration zero carbon energy storage, which could be hydrogen or a hydrogen type derivative that we will explore at places like Talawara, in the absence of that, we see an opportunity to materially take all the emissions out of coal by having Mount Piper just operate for those periods so that it can maintain a contribution to system reliability while taking all of the, uh, the emissions out. That will give you a sense of the way that we think. We're thinking about how do we take the emissions out and accelerate the path to net zero. That's pretty interesting, actually. So Mount Piper, I mean, you know, let's, let's say theoretically you keep it in reserve for a few years. I mean, can it sit there for a year or two, not be used, and then be switched on for a, a Dunkelfraut, which is the uh, German name for these long sort of wind and solar droughts? And um, while you're answering that question, I'm kind of interested into how you are thinking about those various battery projects, particularly at Mount Piper, Lake Lyle, whether you're bidding them into the New South Wales capacity investment schemes, what's the federal government one, their long duration storage schemes, and how that works. So I, I kind of fitted in two or three questions before handing it back to David. Sure. Look, on the coal question and can coal sit in reserve, I'm going to give you an example, which is our parent company, CLP, based in Hong Kong. They have a coal-fired power station called Castle um, PK, and some of the units there operate 3% capacity factor, which means they're only on for 3% of the year, typically in summer when it's um, they've got their peak demand. So that's an example of a coal-fired power station that can sit there and operate when it's needed and um, not and when and then run not run when it's not. Now that doesn't just happen, that does require investment in the right sort of technologies and um, and sort of skills in order to do that. It's things like chemicals. Things like um, barrier protection that gets put on bits of metal when they're not in use to prevent oxidization, things like the corrosion that comes with air. But with the right sort of preparation, we think that's a feasible role. Of course, the market and policy structures would have to adapt to support that role. It's not something we think works in the existing market, but equally, we're talking about a role that comes to life in, we think, something like um, 10 years, maybe sooner. And uh, there's plenty of time for the market to adapt if that is indeed the best solution as a bridge to that long duration um, energy storage, the zero carbon long duration energy storage. Then, as you say, we, we are a believer in, in do the things that we can do when we can do them. And those batteries are something that we, we can move on now. Um, like, uh, I think like the whole industry, um, we are uh, we are looking at all of, the, uh, all of the various tenders and approaches that are, that are underway. And um, we'll use each and every avenue we can to uh, to bring our projects to life as quickly as we can. So, Mark, uh, there's a whole lot of things I'd like to talk about, but uh, I think just you, you yourself you know, have a, have a home battery and solar on your roof. Am I right in saying that? You are absolutely correct on that, David. And what about an EV, Mark? I've got one of those. I've switched out my gas heating. I've replaced it with electric heating too. And, and, and are you happy with the outcome so far from your perspective as, as, as a consumer? I am happy. I think there's more work to do, more work for, for us as Energy Australia and more work for the industry, um, industry more generally. Uh, there's, it's a really instructive exercise to, to go down this for the, uh, from the home perspective. One of the things that it really brings out for me is that winter is the challenge, not summer. Uh, solar, I can self-supply our house during summer. We have no, no particular issues with that. I can't do it with, during winter because we, don't have the, uh, we just don't have the generation to do that in Victoria. Possibly and that, that's, that's the Victorian issue, isn't it, really, which I want to come back to in terms of Energy Australia, is that uh, at the moment, Energy Australia is quite a, quite a, quite a 
a Victoria and New South Wales centric state. Whereas when I look at the if you, where you want to be from a renewable energy perspective, you you might want to be more Queensland focused. But putting that to to uh, in, on the back burner. <laughs> Uh, uh, can I ask, you know, you, you, you've got a lot of gas retail customers and they are in, I guess, Victoria mostly and South Australia, I think, uh, and some in New South Wales. How are you thinking about how Energy Australia, the role of Energy Australia for those guys, uh, you know, given what looks like more regulatory pressure on, on residential gas going forward? Look, our ambition that we stated in the Climate Transition Action Plan is uh, around scope three to get to net zero by 2050 in the same way that we have plans for scope one and two. What that means for us is scope three is all about our customer emissions and our supply chain emissions. And as we think about where we take our, um, where we take our customer emissions or, or, or work with our customers on solutions, we're a big believer in electrification. So we're a big believer in electrification because we can see that it's easier to take the emissions out of uh, out of electricity than it is out of um, other industrial processes and gas. So when we look at uh, at our path ahead, we're currently working on plans, and those plans will include um, the roles that we intend to play around uh, electrification and delivery of solutions to both decarbonise and electrify. So at the moment, we're looking at um, opportunities around particularly switching from gas heating to uh, electric uh, and particularly heat pump style hot water systems. And if you think about our, our solar home bundle structure I mentioned earlier, that sort of structure might be quite a good one that we can scale to uh, higher levels to then make it easier for customers uh, to, to deal with moving off the gas grid over time and electrifying and decarbonising all in all in a simple way to do it. And that's that's the area that we're exploring at the moment to bring to life. Yep. And I then wanted to ask about comparative advantage uh, for an existing Gentailer, leaving aside the fact that you've got a big customer loads, which I think is a, is a huge advantage for anyone. Uh, if you're not going to be building you know i also think there's a lot of skills to be had in learning how to do wind and solar development skills that very few people seem to have i might add in australia looking at the current lack of progress but where will energy australia's what what will be its reason for existence you know what where, where will you be adding value in the process and and growing the business overall we see ourselves first and foremost as a retailer whose job is to make the energy transition simple for customers if you like, combining the best of the small-scale energy technologies with the best of the big. And we see that, um, that that's, that's really what we have to be good at. It's understanding the best solar, battery, electric vehicle, potentially heating, hot water system combination for a given style of, of household and customer and understanding the best way we can backfill the part of that that, that then comes from, from the grid. Now, in order for us to do that well, it does mean that we will extend some of our activities into, into equity and participation into uh, some of the projects as they emerge. Um, the Eleonora Offshore Wind Farm being a good example of that. We will look at participation in other, um, in other wind in particular projects uh, from time to time. It'll generally be in circumstances where we see a benefit in us adding our skills to that of the developer that can get a better answer for our customers. In a circumstance where it's um, it's sort of more convenient for everyone involved for us to just be off taker, sometimes that's the way we can actually get the fastest um, the fastest transition. And if you look at times in the past when we've been particularly active in the space, um, it, it was some time ago now, but the last time we were big in New South Wales, we brought three or four projects together and had them all happen from a financial investment decision and construction position all quite quickly. And on our own, we would not have been able to deliver three projects at once. So we, we recognise it's not always us doing the delivery that will get the fastest action and the best results.
Look, we see the opportunity on onshore wind, offshore wind, solar, and we're, like most of the players, trying to put together the pieces of the jigsaw in a way that gives the best possible answers. Um, there are a couple of different ways to answer the not enough renewable generation from solar in Victoria in winter. One is potentially um, solar in Queensland that makes its way down uh, to the NEM. Another is offshore is onshore wind in, in another state. Another is offshore wind uh, in Victoria. At the moment, from what I can see, um, I think there's a benefit in at least working out the different cost structures and the, the nature of each of the solutions. Like you, I do believe offshore wind is looking pretty expensive at the moment. But I, I must admit, I've also been absolutely gobsmacked by the price levels that they've managed to get to in the North Sea in Europe. And uh, my understanding of Victoria is it's as close to the North Sea as anywhere in the world. So I think there's there's some prospect that, um, that potentially offshore wind outperforms expectations, but it's um, it's a long way before we'll know. Yes, indeed. I'm, I spent a day and a half at the Offshore Wind Conference in, in Melbourne this week, and it was just fascinating to listen to them. I mean, clearly, uh, the industry sort of overshot or undershot its, uh, itself with sort of getting carried away with some low bidding prices, which they can no longer meet because of what's happened in the last couple of years with the supply chains. But there is this confidence that um, those costs will come down, or though they do point out at the same time that the very first projects in Australia will not be cheap because of all the new infrastructure and learnings that need to go into it. Um, look, just very briefly, Mark, I'd just like to come back to Mount Piper. I mean, it's, fa it's fascinating sort of scenario you're painting for that and the way you're sort of, you know, sort of down, sort of, you know, changing the roles of the coal-fired power station, getting it out of the way. Will you, though, have to strike a deal with the government, say, in New South Wales government, in the same way that you've done for your lawn and the same way that um, AGL's done for Luoyang A, to sort of guarantee some sort of support or an agreement to keep it at least available until a certain time, be that 2035, 2040, or whatever it is? Based on the current market structures, we don't think that the role that we've put out in the Climate Transition Action Plan, that reserve role, we don't think it quite works with the existing market structure, but we also know that the energy market tends to evolve. Uh, look, it's no secret we have been a proponent for a capacity um, scheme of some sort. And our vision for a capacity scheme was always that it should um, articulate how much uh, long duration storage, short duration storage, capacity, however you want to describe it, was needed for the system and then, um, and then run a run a market to deliver that outcome. That's one way that it might end up with uh, with Mount Piper being funded into into that role. Um, there are other structures which uh, which could be contracts with various counterparties or, or other pieces. Um, I think it's a space that's going to get more and more attention because if Australia is really going to deliver net zero, these are the types of solutions that will uh, will really make it happen. Yeah, well, you didn't quite get a capacity market that you would have wanted, but you kind of went and got your own capacity agreement, I guess, with the Victorian government. But um, there is a new capacity market that would encourage, well, in theory, um, battery storage and um, snow, and it's not snow, I'm going to talk about snowy hydro in a minute, I hope, but um, pumped hydro. How quickly do you hope to get these projects underway? And um, is the market mechanism as you see it going to be strong enough for that? The Commonwealth Capacity Investment Scheme is currently currently running tenders, and look, I, I expect that there will be some battery projects that get up through those through those tenders. Uh, look, one of the advantages of batteries is that they're they're pretty quick. They're not particularly complicated to deliver from an engineering and um, and a whole lot of other attribute perspectives, and so uh, they can come to life within within two to two to three years. Um, is often often possible to do it at some quite some quite big scales. Pumped hydro, that will take a little bit longer. Um, there are more risks to work through, particularly geotechnical, um, both from a reservoir siting and from uh, from tunnelling perspective. So I, I, I'd anticipate the pumped hydro projects that are, that are on the books, ours and others, will be more in the back half of, of this decade and potentially 27, 28, 29 is when um, is when I'd see them coming yeah. online. And can I just ask one more question before handing back to David? Um, it's not your business, it's the government-owned Snowy Hydro, but it's quite a, just a, an astonishing revelation this week that their, um, that their uh, costs will 
will, will double for Snowy 2.0 to, to $12 billion. Um, they've already spent $4.3 billion, so it seems quite remarkable that they haven't actually, it hadn't dawned on them that they're running out of budget and when they got this far. How do you see, you're a competitor in the market, um, the Snowy Hydro is a government-owned retailer. I mean, how do you feel like such a heavily um, subsidised asset, I mean, it's basically taxpayer-funded, it's going to play a dominant role in the market, even if it might not be as useful to the renewables transition as many people think, it still gives Snowy Hydro enormous power in the market. Um, I mean, you don't like sort of, sort of shitting on other companies, I suppose, excuse the language, but um, when you look at that, what, what, what goes through your mind? And please be frank. Look, <laughs> look, there's a couple of thoughts. Firstly, there's not a lot of Snowys. Uh, just be be very clear, Snowy has a week's worth of storage. Uh, I don't know of any other pumped hydro projects that have that. So that that's quite unique. That's not a project that I could take um, and invest in as Energy Australia just because of the risk profile of the project. So it is, it, it certainly is a government project. Were there opportunities to uh, to run tenders or to look at other options, things like Lake Lyle, our pumped hydro and other people's pumped hydro and potentially get them online a bit faster. Yes, I think there there potentially were some opportunities and there there still are. Uh, I'd really like to focus on bringing those to life now so that, um, and they may well be online. Um, yeah, I'd like to believe we can bring Lake, Lake Lyle pumped hydro uh, online before then. Absolutely. It's a, it's a topical space. And as you say, AEMO's just published the Electricity Statement of Opportunities and they've revised some of their assumptions around the coordination of, of that distributed storage. And it's, it's significant at the system scale. So from our perspective, uh, the approach that we're taking is to design products and ways for both to make it simple for customers to, um, to, to get the best of that small-scale technology in their home and not even have to think about it. That's, that's at one end. And on the other end, easy ways to participate without having to, um, to look at the, the energy market price every, every five minutes or so. We are coming from the perspective of the, the way to keep the energy transition as affordable as possible is to invest in capacity once wherever possible. So rather than have uh, an uncoordinated battery, which means that if I'm a retailer supplying that customer, I don't know that the battery is going to be there at the time of peak demand, so that I, so I then go and either buy or build enough capacity to meet that peak demand. Rather than do that, I, I seek a way to have the customer um, have their dispatchable capacity counted as part of our portfolio, and that's the that's the design approach that um, that we're taking to do it. I've mentioned statistically, though, Mark. Statistically, if there are enough batteries and you have the right time of use tariff, and it, uh, and it can be simple you could probably statistically count on a lot of batteries actually being there when they're supposed to be because that's just the law of large numbers, isn't it? Oh, well, you've just given me a great opportunity to plug Solar Optimizer, which is a new product that we've launched, which gives a 40 cent feed-in tariff. And the whole idea of that is that it's, um, it's doing exactly what you're saying, making it easy for customers to do that based on tariff design. We're also, uh, we think tariff design is really, really quite important not just from a battery economics perspective, but from a um, giving all customers the opportunity to participate in the energy transition. So what I mean by that is that uh, we really like the solar soak tariff in South Australia. We think it's, um, it reflects that networks build for peak capacity, which is in the evenings and the mornings, and they don't build for the middle of the day when there's, there's lots of energy around. And we're currently working with um, with the good team at uh, Essential Energy under John Cleland through the Energy Charter on a piece around network tariffs and around design for future network tariffs that would both um, both underpin participation by low-income households in the middle of the day through access to things like solar soak tariffs, which low prices for customers who 
um, who then have an opportunity to use energy in the middle of the day and help stabilise the grid in that way, um, but also then rebalancing tariffs so that there's a, a, there's a good signal for um, the value of the capacity that the battery might provide um, later in the day to come to life. Doing that sends the right signal to us to, to continue to develop products for the customers who want us to solve that problem, and it, it, it helps the economics of all those customers who do it themselves. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, uh, of course, you can also manage your network bill more or less, can't you? I mean, you, again, as a statistical thing, it's more or less a fixed cost uh, for you rather than, and you can sort of design your own network tariffs, but I, I didn't want to dwell on that. What I did want to ask is that the capacity investment scheme like, is, has all these features around you know, the states or the federal government kind of accepting tenders, picking winners and all the time. And it's almost an option for the bidder because if they don't like the price, they can't build to the price that they build it, bid in then they just don't build at all. I guess I wanted to ask you is, do you see much merit in having a behind the meter uh, kind of uh, subsidy like the SREC being extended to smalls as a, and taking some of the money that's away, away from the capacity investment scheme and directing it more behind the meter? How do you feel about that kind of concept? Look, I start from a pretty agnostic perspective, and if the problem is capacity, then whether it's small scale or large scale, um, I'm very happy for both to participate. Uh, as of, as we discussed, there's some real advantages to the distributed model. I mean, customers want it. That's a that's a huge huge advantage to kick off, and it's fast. So I I think there is some merit in what you're saying. I'll, I'll hand uh, I'll hand back to Giles again, but I'll just ask one more question, Mark. Is there any? I've got my points of view, and and Giles has got his. Is there anything before as I hand back to Giles that you wanted to get across that we haven't asked about? Look, I'm just very focused on customers and bringing everyone along for the energy transition, and and sometimes uh, sometimes I think the discussion can focus on the problems and the challenges. But there's lots of opportunity for customers through the energy transition. I spoke to low-income households. If we can create ways that they can access the benefit of renewables and lower prices during the days, then, then we really start to bring it to life for different cohorts of people. Equally, uh, probably one that we haven't talked to is that transition um, for us has to happen really well. So we announced the closure of your lawn in 2028. and Sorry, uh, and we announced that in 2021. We've spoken to everyone who calls your lawn home uh, already about what their plans are for retirement. Some people uh, will, upon retirement of the power station, um, also retire. Others are interested in, well, what about that offshore wind? Perhaps I can have a role there. And so then that leads us into discussions with offshore wind to see if there are, are opportunities there. And for others, they'd like a, an extra um, construction ticket or something to reflect the skills that they've already got, but without um, perhaps having the formal qualification. So we think on both sides, focusing on the um, how to do this well for customers and then how to do it well for communities that are transitioning, that's the way that we really can accelerate the path to net zero. Mm. Um, Mark, we're pretty much at the end of the conversation. We've already had you for 40 minutes and we're, we're very grateful for that. But look, I've just got two very quick questions and, and this will go to some of the other issues that are running around at the moment. The question of the ARAR enclosure and things like that, I mean, do you care? Would you just kind of accept... Um, whatever is decided by the company and, and possibly AEMA and possibly the government? I mean, do you look at the ESU and go, oh, golly gosh, um, or do you just pretty much mind your own business? Look, I, I really care about our customers' experiences and our customers had a 30% price rise. All customers had about a 30% price rise and I really would like to see those price rises moderate. And we do, we do know one of the fundamental axioms of economics is that more supply means, means lower prices. Um, I do think there's potential for a rowing to stick around in some sort of reserve role, similar to what I described for, for Mount Piper, if not in a always-on role. Um, that might be a good answer. Um, equally, I acknowledge that the, the New South Wales government and, and AEMO um, will work through the various options and that they may have better better options in place. So um, I, I don't think it's solved yet. Let's watch this space. 
Well, it'd be an interesting one. And look, just getting back to your own sort of experience with electrification, I mean, would you recommend that to your customers now? And, and what do you sense from your customers, particularly in electric vehicles and things like that? Are they ready to move the switch? Because this is, um, when this happens, and it's, you know, it's picking up speed already, um, 7 8%, you know, once we get uh, fuel emission standards into the, um, into the country, we're going to see a big increase in electric vehicles. Um, are you sensing that the customers are ready to move? And... Um, um, are utilities like yours going to be ready for that? I mean, I, I guess the theme from this conversation has been that you're very much trying to be, but it's a uh, it's a completely different way of doing business for you, isn't it? Look, it is, and uh, the energy world's changing really fast. And as you say, the electric vehicle penetration has grown. I live in Burundara in the in Melbourne, which I think has got the highest penetration of electric vehicles of just about anywhere in Australia. And it looks like every second car is a Tesla, or I've got an I've got an MG. Um, the, the space that I think we've got to do more work in is really around the behavioural attributes of, of charging. And uh, I'm, I'm a believer in there, there'll be something around vehicle to grid. Um, I don't know how we're going to access it yet. And it comes down, I, I say behaviour, because I don't know any electric vehicle owner who just will charge, will just plug their car in all the time. And if you're going to do vehicle to grid and rely on that battery to to augment the house or the grid at, at times, you'd need to get that behaviour in place. Most people won't do that. I think there's but potential, more potential for uh, for for maybe things like designing tariff structures that encourage people to to charge. And it might be um, it might be if we end up with a lot of wind that um, the, the the default approach of the tariff is overnight because there's wind, and then the way that the vehicle to grid actually supports the broader grid is it might sort of interrupt charging rather than take power back from the car. And I think we've got to really explore all these behavioural options so that we, we make it easy for customers to participate in a way that, um, that keeps the cost to the grid down, avoids building out, um, building out unnecessarily. Um, that's got a long way to go. At the moment, um, it's still so new and um, everyone's doing their own thing. And that, that matches where we're at, but uh, it won't necessarily get the best overall outcomes for all consumers. I hear behaviour again mentioned, and everywhere I look, behave, it's a people business. It's not an economics, really. It's not technology that is the issue. It's behaviour here, there, and everywhere. Mark as as I expected, it's been a great pleasure having you on uh, Energy Insiders, and I, I hope uh, uh, the next year go and next couple of years go very well for Energy Australia. Thanks very much, David. Great to talk to you and Giles. Australia's most anticipated clean energy event, All Energy Australia, returns to the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, October 25 and 26. This event is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors. Featuring over 350 suppliers and attracting more than 10,000 industry professionals, you can't miss this free event. Register now for All Energy Australia 2023, October 25 and 26, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. And of course, we'd uh, like to thank all the sponsors for the uh, Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, David, that was a fascinating interview with Mark Collette. Um, do I kind of detect a bit of a change of direction here? Sort of um, language has changed quite a lot since I think the last time we spoke to 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 Mark. Um, very much consumer focus, but I just don't think he's going through the motions there. I mean, obviously, desperate to hang on to as many customers as he can, but this this this, this great realisation that the world is changing for them. And, um, and I just thought a really interesting way of talking about Matt Piper, the, you know, probably the last coal generator in New South Wales. Uh, yes, it doesn't surprise me that much. In, in essence, uh, it's not that different, I don't think, in a lot of ways to the strategy of uh, Origin and um, um, AGL, uh, really. And I think uh, all the CEOs, and particularly, I think, Mark, as much as anyone, were very influenced by the ISP and understanding that the capital it takes to fully replace uh, your lawn and Mount Piper uh, you know, it has to be accessed somehow and, and none of them seem to have, like that's where Brookfield will be so good for Origin. They can they can finance a lot of stuff themselves. Um, 
but anyway, uh, our listeners can listen to that uh, for themselves and make their their own mind up. Look, let's talk about some of the other issues that have been around this week. It's been a, a, a very big week. I mean, I mentioned Snowy Hydro and Snowy 2.0 in that interview with uh, with Mark. What's your assessment? I mean, it just seems extraordinary to me. Um, but I guess now that they spent $4.5 billion, it's probably too late to sort of hang it up now. So um, we're just kind of lumped, lumped with it. And I, I guess it might be useful. Well, no, it will be useful. But certainly looking at it now, it wouldn't have been the smartest choice um, if, you, if you could do it all over again. No, the process for selecting Snowy 2 was terrible. Uh, we knew that years ago. Uh, it, it's the worst example of the government just picking winners. It's the worst example of a government just owning something uh, and, and, you know, pretty much ignoring the market. But that's history. Uh, the second thing I'd say, I'd very much agree with the reported comments of Chris Bowen that uh, Snowy really should have known about the geotechnical problems that they were running into. I mean, I think that's completely unacceptable uh, for former management not, not to. And I actually think the board should take some responsibility uh, for that as well. Uh, this kind of cost blowout uh, would see um, in the private sector would see not just the CEO, but, but you know, the chair and various other people having to step down. It's, it just wouldn't be acceptable at all. Uh, the third I, thing I, I, I agree I think with... He, I, th I think the former CEO said he was shocked. Shocked he was. Shocked I am. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he was shocked, but he shouldn't have been shocked and, and, and no one should be shocked. I mean, it was well known that it was difficult, as far as I know, I think at least I think I knew, it was difficult ground. Uh, the third thing I'd say is I agree with your comment. It just uh, crowds out uh, all the private sector has to compete with a fully subsidised uh, government uh, thing. In in one sense, although I'm sure that uh, Snowy will just charge us whatever the market price is uh, eventually. And, 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 and finally, I agree with Mark's comment that we do need, uh, or it's nice to have, a, a very long duration option there. But the immediate thing, uh, Giles, that we all want to uh, understand that everyone wants to know about is the electricity statement of opportunities that AEMO's produced. Now, I've had a good read of it, but so have you. What did you make of it? Well, look, I thought it was interesting. Um, not that much has changed. Well, actually, no, a fair bit has changed in, in, in many senses. I mean, the, it, it tends to be sort of a, a confusing document and you can basically, as a as a journalist or even probably an energy participant, sort of dive in there and pick out any headline you want. And um, they must certainly have um, blackout you know, warnings all over the front pages of the paper. Essentially, what we do know is that if we can build enough of this battery storage, which is under tender at the moment and connected in time, which is no sure thing, then we can easily replace Iraring. What I guess is the understatement that the, the, the big underlying issue from AEMO, um, even though they're partially or fully responsible for that sort of commissioning and connection process, is that you know we've got to get on with this. We can do this, but not if we keep on sort of um, dragging our feet. Um, I thought there were some interesting discussions there introduced into the conversation, one about distributed energy and the orchestration of that and the fact that it's not going to happen to the extent that they had hoped and they had anticipated. So the capacity, um, I guess, anticipation is being sort of downgraded. And they've also had a bit of a rethink about sort of, you know, how to sort of acknowledge capacity of, of, of big batteries, you know, two hours, four hours, six hours, they've all been downgraded to a certain extent, mainly because they've kind of realised that they might not all be available when needed at the peak and fully charged and ready to go. So that was kind of interesting, but they're kind of things at the margins, things that will have to be dealt with, but really the underlying list, the underlying thing is is that we can actually get these coal-fired power stations out of the grid if we just build this capacity and this whole tactic of delay, 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 which we see ev everywhere, plus a bit of incompetence actually just getting things done is just really annoying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, for my part, I, I, I think the modelling from AEMO continues to improve, you know, uh, comments like uh, uh, the fact that wind is likely to be less in, say, Victoria when it's really hot and demand is high. That's true. We know that. But now it's uh, formally incorporated into the modelling. The second point I'd make is that uh, batteries are no substitute for wind and solar. Batteries have to be charged. Batteries and, and gas are like the things you're doing because you haven't got the system built that you really need. They're, they're, they're like the emergency uh, buttons that you can pull. Uh, and, and so the third thing is that we do need, which is obvious, we do need to get the transmission, the wind and the solar built. And that, again, it's exactly what I said in, uh, in the interview with Mark. It's about people. 
it's there's plenty of money to build wind and solar. There's plenty of money to build transmission, no matter what it costs. There's tons of capital there. There's not much in the technology that we need to understand. We understand how to do all of that. Our EMO can do its uh, grid planning uh, and get a lot better at it. There's no doubt it will. What we haven't got is all the people on side. The reason why it's slow and hard is the planning has been hopeless. The New South Wales government has done a hopeless job on the planning in every way, shape and form. The fact that we've got an REZ and people out there don't know where everyone's going to be living. Uh, they can't see what's in it for them. They can't see in total how much it's going to be built and where it's going to be built and how the whole thing and what benefits there'll be uh, and the same what's going to be in New England. That's where the issues lie. And, it, uh, and we knew six years ago that negotiating easements was one of the world's worst jobs. But what have we done? We still hardly started. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my criticism, Giles. Yeah, well, and that's where the risk is too, because if we don't get a lot better at that today, yesterday, uh, we won't get there. Look, and, and, I, and I hear you on that, and I've been hearing quite a lot from sort of various developers and, um, and, and big energy companies, pretty frustrated with that um, renewable energy zone process. And some of them are just sort of saying, look, we're just not interested. It just doesn't work for us. We can't build it there, which is just an extraordinary thing for them to say. And you know, there's a few people now just sort of thinking, we're thinking well beyond the renewable energy zones. We're thinking either the distribution grid or we're thinking further out and maybe having high voltage lines coming into the existing grid from, from afar. And it was a little bit fascinating to talk to see the transgrid um uh, transmission sort of um, annual assessment and they're now starting to talk in those terms or, you know you start to think about sort of gigawatt scale projects literally at the back of Burke and then just sort of being sort of brought in on, on high voltage power lines now to what extent that can work I'm not too sure but that's kind of the thinking that's that people are now having but anyway that's another topic from the day David um, we've um, it's been a great podcast we've used up our listeners time I think we have the washing up's done the gardening's been done the um, the kids have been taken to school whatever it is that you're doing thank you very much for listening everyone uh, do listen to our other podcast, the Driven Podcast, the uh, Solar Insiders Podcast, and our new Switched On Podcast. Fantastic interview this week with Peter Newman from Curtin University about his electrification journey and his views on cities and EVs and things like that. And look, thanks very much for Mark Collette from Energy Australia for joining us. Thanks, Dave, for lining that up. Hope you keep well. And uh, thanks to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.